But we are in this series at the moment, uh, thinking about this question which is up on the screens that you can see. What is the church for? And, you know, we live in an age of, of spirituality that's very mixed, personal spiritualities, online spiritualities, multi-faith spiritualities. And the question that we wanted to look at over the course of the rest of the winter and into the spring is, is what does it mean to be a physical gathered community of believers? And of course, we're not talking about, do we need big old buildings or do we need particular denominations or particular theologies or um, particular movements? But we are talking about this idea of the ecclesia, the gathered body of people who are committed to God who are committed to one another, committed to prayer and worship and mission and growing together. And last week we put uh, the first puzzle piece in the jigsaw puzzle, which was about being light in the darkness. Um, And if you remember this picture, if you were here last week, this is a, a solar array, the biggest solar array in the world. And it's a bunch of mirrors. It's a bunch of mirrors which all work together to reflect the light of the sun onto a particular point which you can see there in the middle. And by doing so, they generate enough heat and enough light to see a city transformed. And we talked about the idea that as Christians, we're not sources of light. We don't contain all the beauty and the truth and the goodness the world needs. But we are reflectors of light. And when we do it together as a church, we can see a city, a neighborhood, a a community transformed. Um, But then the question, which we didn't get to last week, which I want to look at today is, well, then what? (laughs) Then what? So you, you could translate that as like, okay, I'm going to join my local church, which is great. Maybe I'm going to go on Sundays. I'm going to join the welcome team, because that's always where people start, or the parking team. And then once a year, I'm going to go on like an outreach project. And in the meantime, I'm going to give financially so that the really crazy hardcore people who do like evangelism and do mission and do street stuff, they can do what they do, and I can sit inside the cold church which will warm up in the spring or next week when the heating's fixed, right? But is that it? Like, is that the entirety of what we mean by being light in the darkness? And of course, the answer is no. There's so much more that God has in mind for us than just that. And so we're going to look this morning at a really incredible letter. It's a letter from God through the prophet Jeremiah to his people, the Israelites, who at this point, 600 years before Christ, are living in exile. They're living in Babylon. And this is a letter about how to live as light in the darkness, how to settle and make good news come to a city. And you're going to read this passage. We're going to read this. Samuel's about to read it for us. And you might notice that you've read some of it before. You might go, oh, I recognize that bit. But maybe you haven't seen the whole of this put together. And hopefully it's going to blow your mind a little bit by the end of how it all works. So Amiel's going to come and read for us Jeremiah 29, if you've got your Bibles, verses 4 through 14. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14. All right. I will be reading from the NLT version, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. 
Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray for the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. The word of the Lord. Amen. Okay. Now, who, who recognized the last bit of that? Yeah, anybody got that bit on maybe their bathroom wall or in their hallway or wrote it in a card recently, you know, you said to someone, I mean, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it's this, that bit right at the end, 10 to 14, such a beautiful picture. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a future and a hope. We, we love that. It gives us such a beautiful picture of God's blessing, of the fact that God loves us, that God is good and he's kind and he's with us and therefore we don't need to worry. But actually, when you put that few verses inside its context, it means something quite radically different or bigger than you thought it ever meant before. And that's what I want to show you this morning. We need the context. And the context is Babylon. Not like Rastafarian Babylon of Bob Marley, but, but Babylon the city. 600 BC. It was the military superpower in the Near East. And their, their vision and their goal was to conquer all of the nations, all of the territories surrounding them. And one of those nations was Israel. God's chosen people. And for a whole bunch of history, God's people fight against the Babylonians and the Babylonians fight against God's people. And it goes backwards and forwards until this guy called King Nebuchadnezzar steps in. If you've heard of King Nebuchadnezzar from like Daniel and the lion's den, he waltzes into Jerusalem. And what he does is quite dramatic. He takes with him all of the ruling classes of the Jews, all the professionals. He takes the priests and the prophets and the skilled workers and the royals and the court officials and the leaders and the artisans. And basically what he's trying to do is he thinks, okay, if I can take them out of Israel, well, firstly, Israel won't be able to operate very well. It'll lose all of its kind of coherence as a society. But also even more than that, if I can take those people and I can assimilate them into Babylonian life, then what will happen is by the time their kids are born and then their grandkids are born, all those Israelites will forget all about Israel because by then they'll just want to be Babylonians. Maybe for some of us who families have moved to the US from other parts of the world in the last like one to two generations, 
we, we recognize that pattern a little bit, don't we? The tension of it. Like our kids, Laura and I, they don't sound like us already. They don't. And we recognize by the time if, ki- if they have kids in the US, probably by then not only will they not sound like Laura and I, they probably won't even think like Laura and I. It'll, they'll be from a different culture. And that's the vision that King Nebuchadnezzar wants to inflict on the, on the Israelites. The problem is, though, is that the Israelites see it coming. They're like, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, that's not going to work. And it's not going to work because what they do then is that when they're carried into Babylon, instead of choosing to live right in the heart of the city, what they actually choose to do is they live out on a canal, which is right out on the edge of the city, and they create this little subculture called the Israelite community, and they refuse to engage with Babylon. And in fact, more than that, they have these prophets and these fortune tellers who are like, oh, guys, by the way, just so you know, God's going to get you out of here. God's going to get you out of here really quickly. Don't you worry, verse 8, because you won't be here for long. You won't be here for long. That's why God writes this letter. And the letter that God writes is completely upside down from what they were expecting. And it is a radical picture of what it means to be light in a dark world. It's a radical picture, not just for the Israelites, but also for us and for any Christian who lives in any part of the world about how you do it really well. And the first thing he says is this, make the city your home. Make the city your home. Verse five and six, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. There's two pictures there, you see. One is like an agricultural picture, like put down the roots of a garden. You know, if you've been at Vintage for a while, that Laura and I have had this little project to try and grow some vegetables and some fruit and be a little healthier and some kind of more bit more green living. And, and last summer, I, uh, I went to Home Depot and I saw this avocado tree. It was like a little one. And my eyes lit up. Like it was, it was like the dream. Because I could, I could picture this scene, right? The Californian dream. You get up in the morning, you put the coffee on, you walk out on your front porch and you pick a juicy, fresh avocado, a soft one from your tree, and you bring it back to your kitchen and you slice it open with that trick where you take the, the, the stone out the middle and then you scoop it out and you put some eggs on the side and maybe some sourdough toast and, and maybe some salsa verde and that's the Californian breakfast of a dream. Is it not? It is the California breakfast of a dream, right? And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. So I bought this tree and I went home and I dug a big hole in the garden and I put it in in there and I covered it over and I watered it and I was like, this is going to be amazing. And I thought, like, is it going to be this year or will it be next year? And then I went online and said, how long does the avocado tree take before it's going to provide avocados? Do you know what the answer was? 10 to 15 years. (laughs) 10 to 15 years. I thought I'd been completely conned. It's like, what, what's the, so basically, here's the deal. If you come around to my house in 10 to 15 years, I will make you breakfast. <laughs> I'll make you breakfast. The point is, of course, is that it takes time. It takes time to put down roots. And it's not just agricultural roots. What does he say? You notice there, he says, marry. Give your sons and daughters in marriage. And by the way, just to be clear, that's not like the first version of flirt to convert. That's not what that is. It's not like go and marry all the Babylonians. That's not what he's saying at all. 
But what he's saying is, be fruitful, multiply. Why? Because you're going to be there for some time. It's a direct um, echo of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, when God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, live in the land, multiply. It's the same deal. And that must have been very scary, I think, to the Israelites. Very scary. Because they've come from this world that they fully understand, Israel. Israel has one God, has a law that comes out which determines all the legal bits of the culture. It determines the worshipping life of the culture. It gives the language. It gives them all the different ways that they understand who they are. And suddenly, like, they're in a different culture. They're in Babylon. And in Babylon, the language is different. The laws are different. The morality is different. And even the worshipping life would have been completely different because this is some sort of, like, pluralistic pagan culture where there would be idol shrines everywhere. It must have felt really, really strange to them. And yet, God says to them, make it your home. Make it your home. Not as like an expat. And I grew up as an expat in Hong Kong. And if you don't know what one of those is, it's somebody who lives in a foreign land but does not know the language and does not know how to engage. I went to school with my three-lion England shirt on or four lions, if you know that story. I, I, you know, I went to do that. Like, I did not speak very good Cantonese. I did not speak very good Mandarin. But I lived in Hong Kong in the subculture, as in, in my own subculture. He says, don't do that. Make the city your home. Don't live as a tourist. You know, when you go to an international city, you can spot tourists a mile away. It's like, do not live as a tourist. No, live as, and the term he's kind of basically using is a resident alien. You are a resident. You're supposed to live in such a way that you are part of the fabric of the society, even though you're exiles. Even though you're exiles. And, and it's not just this point in history where God says that. He says it throughout the Bible. 1, 1 Peter 1, 1, James 1, verse 1. You Christians are people who live in exile. Here in LA, we are people who live in exile. We live in a culture where the religious landscape can feel weird, where the language can feel weird, where even the morality of the city can feel strange and odd to us, especially if we grew up in particular Christian contexts. We live in a big city like LA, and we're like, this just all feels a bit intimidating and a bit weird. But yet, God says, you're a resident. You're a resident of LA. So see the beauty. See the value. See what it is that I created and why I created it. God brings people to places like Babylon. I don't know why you think you came to LA. I don't know if you grew up here. I don't know if you had bright lights like shining in front of you and you were like, I'm going to do that thing called the industry. I don't know if you came to make big bucks. I don't know if you just thought it's so sunny in California. And now you're going, why is it not so sunny in California? <laughs> I don't know why you came here or why you think you came here. But it's possible if you've been open to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, very possible that God brought you here. You know, it's in this passage, there's this question like, how did the Israelites get to Babylon? And the first bit of the puzzle we know is that the Israelites were involved. If you know the backstory, you know that there's this whole story of them like obeying God and refusing to obey God and backwards and forwards. There's this death part of the story. Then you see in, in verse one, this bit where, where God says, actually, uh, I... Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar brought you 
into the exile. And then you see in verse 4 and verse 7, oppositely, it says, God took you there into Babylon. And so you go, well, which one was it? Was it like them? Was it the social and the political and the economic forces? Or was it God? And of course, the answer is, it was all of it. God using all of those other things to take them to this place where he wanted them to be. And isn't that how God so often works? You know, you may have thought when you came to Pasadena or LA, man, this is my dream or this is what I want to be doing with my life and this is how it's going to be. But is it just possible that actually God had a plan as to why you got to where you got to? God brings people to places like Babylon. Why? Because he wants to do something beautiful there. Because he wants to do something good there. Because he wants to bring something of blessing there. Maybe it's possible that God not only just brought you to Pasadena or whatever city you live in, but maybe he even brought you to your street. He brought you to your neighborhood. He brought you to a workplace. He brought you to your school because he wants something to happen there. And I I think it's amazing that God brings people to places like L.A., I think I, was, I think I was about 19 when I realized that LA is like right on the front line of world culture. I, when I got to undergraduate at, in the university in the middle of the United Kingdom, it was the, the year that Friends was in its final season. Anyone remember that? Most of you are like, no, too young. Okay, it was a long time ago. Friends was in its final season. Sex in the city was just becoming a thing. And, and suddenly, like, we, suddenly like, everyone would, like, in the dorms, they would all gather together when the latest episode was on. You remember that time when you actually had to watch TV when something was on? It was a long time ago. But people would gather around in their dorms, and they would all sit on these tiny little screens, and we'd all watch together, and it was, like, hilarious and fantastic. I kind of realized over, over the time that I was on campus, though, that this was more than these just shows. Because the whole moral and the, like, the social landscape of the, of the culture of the university was kind of governed by these shows. Like even the language, like friends with benefits. And if you don't know what that is, don't, look, don't Google it. Right? And, and like sleeping with your, your friends and like doing this and all this kind of stuff. It was all coming out of these few shows. Not just these few shows, but they were part of it. And I never thought, well, where did these shows come from? And so I looked it up. I'm like, where do they come from? A few guys in Burbank, California, right, in a studio doing something super funny and creative who are setting the culture for the world. How much do places like LA set the tone for the whole globe, whether it's technology, whether it's social media, whether it's the entertainment industry, this is the front line of culture. And God calls us to places like this to make a difference to bring the light into the darkness, to bring the good news of Jesus to bear. You know, over the last couple of years, LA continued to grow. I don't know if you knew that. We kind of thought people left LA the last couple of years. If you can just about make this out on the screen. Even over the last couple of years, LA grew. But let me tell you something which which is a bit of a burden on my heart. So many Christians have left LA this last couple of years. Now, people leave LA all the time for all sorts of reasons. It's a hard and expensive city to live in, and I'm not, please don't think I'm going at anyone in particular, I'm not. But isn't it sad that as the city grew, as the influence of LA grew these last couple of years, actually many, many people chose to leave LA. 
even though we're called to places like this. You know, we can look at LA, can't we? You can go, well, but I don't agree with it. Like, I don't agree with its morality, or I don't agree with the values here, or I don't agree with the political worldview here, or I don't agree with the weather anymore here, or I don't agree with this. We can make all these kind of views, and it makes us want to think, well, should I get out of the city? Should I leave? Should I go somewhere where it's more comfortable, where I feel more at home, where I feel like I understand the worldviews a little bit easier? And so we feel like we should leave. Or what we do is we think, no, no, I should stay, but I'm going to create a subculture. I'm going to create a bubble, just like the Israelites did. I'm going to live outside of the city. I'm going to create my own worldview, my own religious systems. I'm going to create my own languages, my own institutions, and create everything around me so that I am completely protected from those weird, strange people out there who I'm actually very scared of. And then we don't engage. And yet, God calls people to the city, and he says, Make your home, put your roots down in the heart of the culture. Make your home. But then he says something interesting as well. The second thing he says is, but know this, you aren't a resident. You aren't a resident. Now, that's a bit complicated. One hand, put your roots down. You're a resident. The other side, though, you're a resident alien. Basically, what he's saying is this is to the Israelites, know that you are not a Babylonian. Remember this. You are not and you never will be a Babylonian because you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Right? When God looks at you and God looks at me, that's what he says. He's like, you guys, your zip code where you live might be 9-1 something. But this is what you need to know. You are not a Pasadenian. You're not an Angelino. You're not a Californian. And don't throw things at me. You're not even an American <laughs> or a Brit. <laughs> Ultimately, you are a citizen of heaven. And you are here in the city to be an ambassador of God in the city. Right? That's the language that God uses. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before behind me. There was a, there was a commercial Anyone recognize that? It was about 20 years ago this commercial went around the world. It's like the ambassador, there he is, with his beautiful wife. And he's like, oh, oui, oui, merci, uh, this uh, Ferrero Rocher, we are, this is wonderful, magnificent. It was all this picture of a beautiful idea of an ambassador. But actually, what an ambassador really does is that they live in country A. They, they work in country A. They build culture and cultural links with country A. They are completely fluent in the language of country A, so much so that they don't even have an accent, unlike your pastor. <laughs> like they're fully in the culture, but yet everybody knows that their loyalty, that their reason for being them there, the values that they hold don't come from country A. They come from country B. They come from country B. Paul says it like this in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your address might be Pasadena or L.A., but your citizenship is in heaven. Which means, therefore, that when we work out how to live in the city, 
we don't take our cues from Babylon. We don't actually take our cues from L.A., We take our cues from who we know God is and what God has to say about who we are. It's where our hope comes from. It's where our self-worth comes from. It's where our identity comes from. It's where our values come from. And of course, if you then track that through, you realize pretty quickly it's an invitation to live radically differently from many other people. It's not just in Israel where that was true. It's not just in LA where that was true. That's always been true. In the first, second century, when the Christianity was exploding throughout the Roman and Greek world, you must think, oh wow, they must have been such a popular bunch. They must have been loved so much by everyone around them. They were not. (laughs) They were not. Like in a Roman context, like they would often get these kind of stories going on, like, well, what's wrong with the Christians, right? Why do they actually love other people? Why do they love slaves? Why do they love foreigners? Why do they love outsiders? That's a, not a good idea. There's this other thing which was like, oh, well, why don't you, Christians, why don't you sleep around with everybody? Because that's a really good idea, particularly for men. Why don't you sleep with everyone? And the Christians said, well, that's not how we're going to do it. Or even, and sorry, this is a little bit grotesque, but this is true. They said, well, when you have a baby girl and you want to extend your family line, why don't you leave your baby girl outside to die and get a son? Why do you live differently? And of course, the answer was, we live differently because we live by different rules. We live by different values. We live by the values of heaven. And it's true for us today, you know. You know, whether you come from a Western culture, which is very much like me-centered, what I need, what I want, my goals. Or even if you come from an Eastern culture, which is like increasing, is more about like us first, you know, our tribe, our family, our culture first. Wherever you come from, the kingdom is different. It's described as upside down. And Jesus says crazy things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the mild, blessed are people who are not like you. In fact, if you look at like worldly culture versus Christian, like God's culture, they are just totally different. I mean, just think about like the big three for a minute, like money, sex, and power, right? In money terms, the world says what? Get it, get as much as you can, and spend it, right? What does the kingdom say? It's not yours. It's a gift. It's on loan to you, so invest it really well so that things can change. Sex in the world, right? Get as much as you can with whoever you want, whenever you want it, however you want it. It's about you. Sex in God's terms is the opposite. It is an act of giving. Giving yourself away to love someone else. It's why, in fact, we say in in, in Christian terms, we only actually say that sex is for marriage because ultimately it has to happen within the context by which you are actually prepared to give yourself away to someone else forever. And so we have that place for sex. Power. Get as much as you can. Be in charge of everything. Power in the kingdom is about serving and sacrifice and loving. It's totally different. And so God says, live in the land. Be in the heart of the culture, but take your values from somewhere else. And let's just be honest. Like That's a hard thing. You know, There's four things God could have said to the Israelites. Number one, he could have said, like, just hang outside the city. You're going home soon. I'll take you out of here. He doesn't. Number two, he could have said to them, hey, just hang out in your own subculture. Do your own thing. Live your own dreams. Do your own story. Just keep away from the Babylonians. 
He doesn't. Third thing he could have said is, just assimilate. Just assimilate. Get in the culture. Be Babylonians. How, how easy is that for us as Christians? Just be like everybody else. He doesn't. The fourth thing is be in the city, but not of the city. Take your values and your way of being from somewhere else. And it's the hardest thing, probably, of all the options. But it's exactly what God says to us. You are light in the dark. Not light in the light. I don't know if you've ever tried taking a small light bulb into a brightly lit room. It doesn't do very much. You're not dark in the dark. You are light in the dark. That's what the church is for. A city on a hill, we're called, to make a difference. So how do you do it? How do you actually go about doing that? Well, this is the mic drop moment in the passage. Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. What? (laughs) The Israelites would have probably lost it at that moment when they heard that because it sounds nuts, right? They've just been carried away into captivity. They're not in their homeland anymore. They're all about Israel. They're all about their own culture. And suddenly, right in here, it says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. And that word is shalom. And shalom is not just peace, by the way. It's way more than peace. This is the best definition I have. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice and fulfillment and delight. It's what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Do you see it? Shalom in Babylon means that the Israelites are told they have to seek the full thriving and the flourishing of the enemy city. They have to seek its economic prosperity, its psychological happiness and hopefulness, its social flourishing in every way. They have to seek it, which means they have to work for it and long for it and love for it. And they would have been absolutely apoplectic at that idea. Now, they were used to the idea of praying for their own city. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the psalmist says in Psalm 122. May those who you love be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security in with your citizens. But now they are called to pray for Babylon. That is beyond anything that seems reasonable. Your enemies, you pray for them. But of course... That's exactly what Jesus says too. Jesus says it in Matthew 5. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not even just what Jesus said, it's what Jesus did. We're told, aren't we? While we were still far away, while we were still enemies of God, while we didn't want to have anything to do with him, Jesus came and moved into our world. He came to us, to live amongst us, to love us, and to save us. 
Like that's what we're called to. We are called to bring the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the values and the love of the kingdom into Pasadena, into our streets, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our workplaces, even onto the Zoom calls that we'll have to do tomorrow, lots of us. As Lisa Sharon Harper says, shalom is what the kingdom of God smells like. We are not people who just tell people that they one day need to go to the kingdom of God, go to heaven, give their life to Jesus, but we are people who to give a taste of the kingdom right now, right here. You know, I I love living around here. I do. I wake up in the mornings. I'm like, I can't believe I get to live near these awesome mountains and the beaches nearby and this incredible diverse city that we live in. I, I love it. There's so much that's good here. But I also know there is so much need here for God's love and his blessing. You know, when, when Laura and I first moved into our, when the house where we lived when we first arrived, we'd never seen it before. We just kind of had this sense that God was calling us and someone lined up the, 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 the rental and we moved in. And we didn't know why. Didn't know anything about the street. But we found out within a couple of days that the people next to us were, were very elderly and, and frail and isolated and they just desperately needed somebody to mow their lawn and take out their trash and, and help them and care for them a bit. And we realized, okay, well, we can do that. That's not very hard. And then we realized the people down the hill from us, they were, they'd been Christians and they'd grown up going to church and then they'd kind of drifted far away from God. And now they were going through very significant health challenges and they just wanted somebody to pray for them. And we were like, okay, all right, well, we, we would love to pray for you and we invited them to some vintage things. And then we realized at the bottom of the street, under the road bridge, in fact, my son realized this, that in Thanksgiving during the pandemic, there was a whole bunch of people living in the dirt under the road bridge at the bottom of the street. And my son said to me, he's like, Dad, how can we possibly have like Thanksgiving dinner on our house when they're sitting in the rain under the bridge? And and he actually challenged us to go and take dinner and we had dinner under the bridge with, with some of these people, and they're still friends. One of them just texted me this morning and was like, hey, we're trying to figure out this housing thing. Can you help us figure out the government housing thing? I was like, yes, we can do that. Now, we haven't got it all right. We haven't figured it all out. A lot of the time, we live in this subculture called Christendom that we create in churches. But I know that God has called me to not just talk about the kingdom, but to enact the kingdom, to live the kingdom, to give a taste of the kingdom that actually what we're here for as vintage Pasadena is to actually make Pasadena a great place to live, to make it financially and economically flourishing, to make it socially uh, socially flourishing, to make it morally flourishing. We're supposed to be people who seek the blessing of our city, hard and complicated as it might seem. But this is the context from which blessing flows. This is the context from which blessing flows. I know, verse 11, the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, do you see why that's so radically different if you take it inside its context? Because when we say it, what we mean is God wants to float you in a nice, comfortable bubble, living your best life, waiting for heaven, right? That's what we mean. And yet, where does the blessing comes? It comes into Babylon, through Babylon, and one day out of Babylon. 
Right? If you know the characters in this story, if you read this bit of history, you've you got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them from the Veggie Tales. Shad, uh, I forget their names, right? Benny, one of them's Benny. Right? What happens to them? They live in Babylon, they live with a different morality, they live in a different story, but they faithfully serve the kings, they serve the emperor, they have to make very tough moral choices which almost lead them at times to their death, but yet God is faithful, God blesses them, God is kind, and in the end they are basically senior civil servants. They are trusted advisors, they run the kingdom of Babylon is what happens. Blessing doesn't happen outside of Babylon. It doesn't happen in a comfy place somewhere in a subculture. No, blessing happens right there in the heart of the city. God cared for Babylon and he cares for LA. He cares for your city, your street. He cares for the place that you work. He cares for the place you're going to hang out next weekend. It's such a holistic vision for blessing. You know, I feel like in these last couple of years, another thing that's made me just, just so sad is the way that I've seen like, Christianity almost divided in two. And like on one side, it's like, well, God is about you know, heaven. God's about personal salvation and the Bible and personal healing and certain moral issues. And then on the other hand, we said, no, no, no. God is about the earth. He's about morality. He's about societal change. He's about goodness. And we've almost like drawn a line down the middle and we've put political terms on it, we've put social terms on it, we've put like demographic terms on it, we've put church denominational lines across it and we've said God is only about this one or he's about this one. And yet when you get this vision for the kingdom, you realize God does not get divided down the middle. God is about almost, if not completely, all of it. He cares about the whole person, the whole city, the whole story, the whole of eternity. What does it mean for you this week to be called to the city, to be called to your street, to be called to your neighborhood? And I used to, um, I used to run this business, and my first ever employee was a guy called Mike, and he was literally the grumpiest man in the world. I mean, especially in the mornings. And he remember one morning he came into the office like even more grumpy than normal. He was just like a bear. And, 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 he, and I said, oh, mate, what's wrong? And he said, my back hurts. And I said, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. And then this kind of thing of the Holy Spirit like just nudged me and was like, pray for him. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not going to go well. But then the Holy Spirit said, no, pray for him. And I went, no. And the Holy Spirit said, pray for him. And I went, okay. So I said to Mike, hey, mate, look, I'm sorry. You know I'm a Christian. I actually think God can heal your back. Could I pray for you? I thought, I mean, he's going to hit me. And, <laughs> and he was like, all right then. And so I, I put my hand on his back. I thought, he's definitely going to hit me now. And, and I prayed this very short and very awkward prayer for his back. And I went, in the name of Jesus, amen. And, and that was it. And he was clearly a bit, a bit kind of like uncomfortable. And so he went out of the office. And later in the day, he came back. And I said to him, oh, mate, how's, how's your back? And he was like, oh, yeah, it's better. Like, that was it. Not, not a thank you, not a like, wow, prayer, not anything. It was just like, yeah, it's better. And that was it. Three weeks later, he came back into the office. He went, oh, by the way, um, just thought you might want to know. Um, I've started going to my local church. I was like, what? <laughs> like, 
about 5% of adults go to church in the United Kingdom. Like for him to go to church, he's like the last person in the world who would walk into a church. He's like, no, I've started to go to my church, right? It came through this ridiculously scared act of trying to be good news and bring healing to him, right? I wonder this week, I wonder who you're going to be hanging out with tomorrow morning. I wonder what Zoom call you're going to be on. I wonder who you're going to bump into on the metro or on the way to walk. walk no, you don't walk to work. It's Pasadena. I mean, drive to work. Like, no, like, who are you going to bump into? And what would it look like to seek not just the salvation, which is part of it, but the prosperity and the blessing of your city? Because I believe God's vision is bigger than our vision. That what God has for vintage is salvation. It is, it is going to heaven but it's also bigger than that. I love that we are here, and it's not because it's the building. I just love that we are right in the center of Pasadena. There's a guy called Jonathan Brooks. He's a black pastor in South Chicago in one of the toughest neighborhoods in, in the US. Um, and he's written this amazing book called Church Forsaken. And this is what he says. It's his vision for a church. And I want to just pray it as a prayer over us as I invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. The church is the body of Christ, made up of followers of Jesus Christ, who seek to be representatives on earth by loving God and loving their neighbor. The body of Christ has unique gifts and power when it physically comes together in the form of a local church. The power is realized through prayer, the working of the Holy Spirit, the ability to act as a connector and an information hub throughout the community, the ability to develop and disciple leaders and to speak into the moral dialogue of a community on national and even an international level. The gifts of the local church are realized through showing love to their neighbors by living life and serving with them, doing justice and loving mercy. And so come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit.